You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. What a privilege we have each week as we open God's word. Because we believe that the Bible is God's word. It's God's love letter to us. So let's open his word at Mark 14 and hear what he has to say. We're beginning at verse 12. On the first day of unleavened bread... When they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover so that you may eat it? So he sent two of his disciples and told them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Wherever he enters, tell the owner of the house, The teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he'll show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. So the disciples went out. They entered the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. When evening came, he arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining and eating, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be distressed and to say to him one by one, Surely not I. And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, the one who is dipping bread in the bowl with me. For the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had never been born. And as they were eating, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them and said, Take it. This is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this, this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly, I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they all went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will fall away because it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I've risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. And Peter told him, Even if everyone else falls away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to him, Today, this very night, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. 
but he kept insisting. If I have to die with you, I'll never deny you. And they all said the same thing. God, in your kindness, we ask that as we hear from your word this morning, that you might give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to receive your word written for us. And these things we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. You could have been a Christian your whole life, and yet I think some part of us still feels like following Jesus is all about just being told what to do, or just being told where to go. Well, we think that being a Christian is just about doing religious things, going to spiritual places. So we say, go to church. Go, go to your midweek small group. Go. Go and serve the needy. And that might be good, right? But there is some unspoken assumption deep inside of us that, you know what? If I just go to church in this life, there's somehow I'm going to be going to heaven in the next. It's a simplistic caricature, I know, right? But I actually think it is deep down how many of us think about God. I've had people say to me, can you just tell me what God wants me to do? Just make my life a bit easier, right? Like, God, what do you want? What will make you happy? Just tell me, where do you want me to go? And in our hearts, if we ask that question, following Jesus is reduced to a shopping list of religious things or an itinerary of spiritual events. Uh, if you're someone who doesn't follow Jesus, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, it, it, that actually might be how you see Christians. People who do religious things or go to spiritual places, hoping against all hope that somehow our attendance at church will get us into heaven. Now, can I say, in one sense, there are places that God wants us to go, and there are things that He wants us to do. God is the creator of our whole world, so... It's right that he has expectations of us. But if we're constantly asking the question, God, where do you want me to go? Can I suggest we're actually asking the wrong question? Because we're making in that moment everything about us. We're making everything about what we do. We're making everything about where we go. And in today's passage, God wants to show us that there is actually a far deeper and far more crucial and a far more important question than that. It's not, God, where do you want me to go? It's, where did Jesus go for us? Where did Jesus go for us? And you see, when we know the answer to that question, when we get into our head and our hearts where Jesus went for us and what Jesus did for us, can I tell you, we'll then know exactly what we must do and where we must go for Him. There's our three questions this morning. Where do you want us to go? Where did Jesus go? And finally, where must we go? Where do you want us to go? Where did Jesus go? And where must we go? And the disciples open with that very first question that all too many of us all too often ask, where do you want us to go? Just look at Mark 14, 12. Where do you want us to go? And prepare the Passover so that you may eat it. Now, now let me set the scene for a moment. Verse 12 says, it's the first day of unleavened bread when they sacrifice the Passover lamb. 
This moment, right, it's like the religious high point of the year. It's like Christmas and Easter all rolled into one. And if you were a first century Jew, can I say, if there was any religious place that you needed to go, this was it. Because the Passover celebrated the Exodus. It remembered the day on which God saved your people out of Egypt all those years ago. When he provided a lamb as a sacrifice to die in your place. When his judgment passed over you because he saw the blood of that lamb covering your home. Passover, that was the moment, right? It celebrates the day when God saved us out of slavery by a sacrifice. For Israel, this this was their national day, right? If there was any religious place you had to go, this was it. Your church attendance could be zero, but make sure you're at this one event, which I'm sure is probably how some of us thought about last week, but that's okay, right? It's no surprise then that the preparations for this day were intense. There was just so many things to do in the lead up to it. Uh, Some of you will know, actually after last week and my sailing photo, all of you will know that a few weeks ago I was in Singapore... I'm going to be milking this for a very long time. And, and we was there just before Lunar New Year, right? And if you know the, the, the kind of preparations that need to go into it, it's pretty intense, isn't it? You have to clean your house, prepare that prosperity salad thing, visit every member of your extended family who didn't know even existed, withdraw a lot of money for all the red packets you're going to give to a lot of people. It's a really involved affair. For a festival, for an event so big, there's just so many things to do and so many places to be. And here in verses 13 to 16, Jesus is giving his disciples really detailed instructions for how to prepare for this moment. Did you catch it? They need to go into the city. They need to meet a man carrying a jar of water. They need to follow him. They need to then look for a guest room where they can share in the supper. Then Jesus says, you'll find a large upstairs room, and it's there you'll prepare for the Passover. And we read that and we think, oh, that's just mundane travel instructions, right? But you can imagine with all these religious things to do, it's so easy to miss the main game. It'd be so easy to fixate on all the preparations for the Passover and yet forget the purpose of Passover. You see, the Passover is supposed to celebrate God's sacrifice. But imagine if it ended up distracting from it. Imagine if it ended up becoming the focus. Imagine if it ended up stealing its glory. Uh, it, would, it would be a bit like a mom who sees her daughter graduate from university and is so excited that her daughter has finally graduated and organizes a big party to celebrate. But then she becomes so fixated on preparing for the party, her role in celebrating this event, that she just even forgets about the fact that her daughter graduated. This party exists to celebrate what her daughter has done, not what she's doing in celebrating this moment. Jesus' disciples, they go to such great lengths to prepare for this Passover, not because it's some religious ritual that they love. No, they do it because of what it points to. It points back to what God did in the Exodus. And it points forward to what Jesus will do on the cross. You know, we keep asking God, don't we? Hey, God, where do you want us to go? 
What do you want me to do? As if the gospel is somehow all about the preparations, the Passover and the party. What we do for God. But the better question is, where did Jesus go for us? Because that's actually what the Passover points to, right? The supper celebrates our Savior, where He was willing to go for us. And time after time, Jesus has already told us where He's going. Three times in chapters 8, 9, and 10, what does He say? I'm going to Jerusalem to die. I'm going to Jerusalem to die. Just as that Passover lamb was sacrificed for the sins of Israel, guess what? I'm going to be sacrificed for the sins of the whole world. God will save us from sin now by sacrificing His Son. Where do you want us to go, the disciples asked. But Mark says the better question is this, where did Jesus go for us? Where did Jesus go? I've never had to put my life on the line for someone, to the best of my knowledge. And if I had to die for someone, I'm just going to be honest, right? I'd sacrifice my life for very few people. I'd like to think that most of them are in this room, but we're not going to name names. I'd sacrifice my life for someone who I thought deserved it, right? Someone who I love and someone who I was confident loved me. And... Right, like I would find it pretty hard to sacrifice not just my life, but anything really for someone who I thought didn't deserve it. Now, if you want to know which category you fall into, I'm going to be standing up here till 12.30, right? And yet, in verses 17 to 21, we see that Jesus went to the cross and he died for a people who didn't deserve it at all. In fact, if anything, here's the tragedy, they were the ones who deserved to die. In verse 18, Jesus shares in the supper with his disciples. All the preparations are made, and finally they sit down and they share in this meal. And imagine in this meal, this high point of your life and intimacy together with Jesus and his 12 disciples seated there. You're thinking, wow, isn't this amazing? I get to be with Jesus and just 11 other people. And then suddenly Jesus says, truly, I tell you, one of you, will betray me. One who's eating with me. It's one of the 12. The one who is dipping bread into the bowl with me. How would you feel in that moment? Maybe you'd be like, not me, right? Or or, or maybe you go, is it him? But I actually think, if anything, it's tragic. Because it tells us that Jesus was betrayed by a friend he loved. In fact, it's someone who's sharing a meal with him right this very moment. And not just any meal, right? This is the Passover. This is a brother in God's family. This is a brother who Jesus loves. We we caricature people in the Bible, don't we? Pharisees, big bad guys. Judas, bad guy hiding in the shadows. Have you ever realized that that Judas is actually a friend who Jesus loves? It it hurts me to even imagine one of my closest friends cutting me off and selling me out. Betrayal hurts, doesn't it? 
If you've felt it, you know it hurts. And betrayal hurts as deeply as much as we love the person who betrayed us. The more you love them, the more it hurts. And Jesus loved Judas. He was one of his inner circle, one of his closest friends, and yet Judas turned his back on Jesus. Maybe you felt the wounds of betrayal before, the pain of a friend you love cutting you off and selling you out, and you just can't believe it. Jesus knows that pain deeper than anyone in this world. Because I want you to know there has never actually been a betrayal as great as his. Jesus isn't just anyone, right? He's the Son of Man. He's God, Savior, King. To betray Jesus is like committing adultery and committing treason all in one. To betray Jesus is to betray God. That's why in verse 21 we read, Woe to that man. Right, Mark can't even say his name. Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. And we think, oh, a bit harsh. But isn't that how we feel about someone who cheats on their spouse? Someone who betrays their friend? If you've seen that before, if you've felt it before, if you've felt it for your friend before, you think, how dare they? How how could they do that? Part of you just wants to hit them, right? Like you wish they never existed. What would you do to someone who betrayed you like that? You might want to take revenge. You might want to get back at them. You might want them to feel the hurt that they caused to you. And on one level, humanly speaking, who could blame you? Do you know what Jesus does? Do you know what Jesus does to a people he loves but who betrayed him? He forgives them. No, he does even more than that. He dies for them. Just look at what he does in verses 22 to 26, right? He, he reenacts the Passover. He points back to what God did in the Exodus when God saved Israel out of slavery by a sacrifice. But now he does something different. He does something radically different. Look at what he says in verses 22 and 24. Take, eat, this is... My body. This is my blood. Can you hear what Jesus is saying? He's saying, it's not a lamb that will be your sacrifice. It's me who will be your sacrifice. It's my body that will be torn. My blood that will be shed. My life that will be given. What God did once in the Exodus, I will do forever at the cross. I will be that sacrificial lamb who dies to save a people who will hate me, who will betray me, and who will kill me. And even though they're the ones who deserve to die for betraying me, I will love them so much that I will die the death that they deserve. That's what he means in verse 24. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for or literally in the place of many. As a substitute for many. 
You see, when we look at how, we've, how much we've betrayed God, how much we hate God, how much we've turned away from God, can I say, friends, it should have been us on that cross. It should have been our blood. It should have been our body. It should have been our life. It should have been us who died. And yet, Jesus loves us so much that he dies as our sacrifice. He dies as our substitute. He dies as our saviour. Even though we hated him. We often think, don't we, that Jesus died for us. We've heard it a thousand times, but we think that he died for an indifferent people, don't we? We think he died for a neutral people. We think he died for people who didn't really care that much. But can you see what this passage is showing? He died for a people who hated him. I have to admit, for many years I have struggled with forgiveness. Every time, I I love my friends, right? And every time someone hurts one of my friends who I love, I get really protective. And I find it hard to forgive them. And I have to admit, sometimes when that happens, the thought of forgiving someone who hurts a friend just makes me so angry. I just think to myself, they don't deserve it. And even if, this is what, this happens more than a few times, right? I'm just so angry, right? And then the friend who was hurt, the friend who was betrayed comes to me and goes, Adam, you know, I think it's time that you move on. I think it's time you probably forgive them. I'm like, no, I can't do that. Remember what they did to you. And they're like, I'm actually okay. I've forgiven them. I just shouldn't. They're godlier than I am. We have betrayed Jesus far more than those people have betrayed any of my friends. And Jesus didn't just choose to forgive us. Gosh, he chose to die for us. He suffered out of love in the place of a people who hated him. And I say, I just don't get that. Imagine now, this hasn't happened, but imagine now one of my friends who's hurt says to me, Adam, you know what, remember that person uh, who really hurt me and you just can't forgive, right? You get, firstly, get over it. right? Secondly, I'm thinking about being friends with that person, bringing them back into my life. Think it's a good idea? I'm going to slap my friend in the face, right? You nuts! Was it enough for you to forgive them? Here's a much better idea, right? Don't bring them back. Send them a text. I forgive you. The Lord bless you. See you in heaven. Here's what I struggle to understand even more. Jesus died not only to forgive our sins, he died to restore our relationship. The very relationship that we betrayed. Against all the natural advice that I would give, he wants us back. Which is why he says in verse 24, this cup is my blood of the covenant. You see, the Old Testament, God's covenant, it was, it was a bit like his marriage to Israel. And just like a husband who promises to love his wife, God promised to love his people. And he sealed that promise of love, not with a ring, he sealed that promise with a life. With the blood of a sacrifice. Exodus 24, verse 8, this is what it says. Moses took the blood of that sacrifice, splattered it on the people, lovely thought, and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you concerning all these words. Can you see what's happening in the old covenant, right? The guarantee of God's marriage to Israel 
was the blood of a lamb. And now Jesus is saying, this is my blood. My blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. God seals his love for us not just with the blood of a lamb. He seals his love for us with the blood of his son. Jesus died in our place not only to forgive our betrayal. That would be big enough. He died in our place to reverse it. He died in our place to bring us home. Jesus doesn't just want to forgive you. He wants to love you forever. To die for a good person is noble. To die for a bad person is strange. To die for a traitor is foolish. And to die to forgive and take that traitor back. Something that only Jesus would do. Maybe you're someone who's walked away from God. Maybe you feel like in your heart of hearts you've cheated on him, you've betrayed him, you've hurt him, you've walked away from him. And you're sitting there going, there's no way he'd take me back. I want to say that actually, that's the very reason why he died. He longs to forgive you. He longs to take you back. He wants you back so much that he died the death that you deserve. We might be constantly asking that question, God, where do you want us to go? As if, as if what we do for him matters most. But can you see that what matters far more than where we go is where Jesus has gone for us? He went to the cross to die, to forgive, and to restore a people who hated him, who betrayed him, and who killed him. And in a moment when we come and share in this supper, when we touch that bread, when we taste that cup, that's what we're remembering. If you've been coming to Cross and Crown for any amount of time, you might notice that we celebrate the supper pretty frequently. Fortnightly, in fact. Why do we do it? Why do we do this, right? It's so much easier just to do it once a month, forget about it, and then do it once a quarter, right? Why do we wait to the very last person, over there or over there, before we all come back together? We celebrate the Lord's Supper for the same reason that, that the disciples celebrated the Passover. We're, we're looking back to the cross where Jesus saved us out of sin by sacrificing his son. Think about this, right? In a moment, when this happened, right? When we leave our seats, when we come to the front, when we receive the bread and the cup, we are remembering that Jesus left his throne, came into our world, and gave his body and blood. And when we touch that bread, we're remembering that it should have been our body broken. When we drink that cup, we're remembering it should have been our blood spilt. It should have been us on that cross. And yet, though we hated him so, so he loved us. Um, I have an increasingly awful memory. 
I think it's due to lack of sleep in a growing church. Wonderful. Uh, well, first one awful, second one wonderful. Uh, just before, um, someone was at church and I was welcoming them. I was introducing them to people and they said, I've been here for three weeks. And I thought, oh gosh, I'm so sorry. Um, I, I have an awful memory. Not just about trivial things, but about serious things. And I need to be reminded time after time, week after week, day after day, of the lengths to which Jesus went to love me. We did a poll of our church uh, two years ago, and we asked you guys, um, when we were in isolation and lockdown and separated, what was one of the things about church you missed the most? And one of the top answers was actually the Lord's Supper. And I think not for no reason. Because I love it, because it's that moment where every fortnight, I don't just hear the gospel, I get to taste, touch, and see that the Lord is good. That's what's going on in a moment. I want to take a brief excursus and flag, though, a great risk. That if you're like me, we might just love the supper more than we love our Savior. And our faith might become less about the cross where Jesus went for us and more about the supper where we come to him. Remember, the Passover pointed to what God did in the Exodus, and the supper points back to what Jesus did on the cross. We must not become the mum who's obsessed with her daughter's graduation party, but loves the party more than her daughter, right? Remember, it's more about what the daughter's done, not what she does. And, and we must not become Christians who are more focused on sharing in the supper, doing church, doing religion, but loving the supper more than our saviour. Can I say, with great respect and love, it is here that I do worry for many of our Roman Catholic friends. Uh, some of you will know uh, that I bear the curse of having went to high school at Xavier College. Um, it was deemed better than Trinity, but not as expensive as Scotch. Um, from time to time, our school would gather to celebrate uh, Mass uh, and the Lord's Supper. Now, on the outside, can I say, it actually looks a lot like how we do it here every fortnight, but there was one big difference, what it meant. You see, we've seen in Mark's Gospel, the supper is a symbol of Jesus' sacrifice. It's a sign of our salvation. But in Roman Catholicism, the supper is Jesus' sacrifice, and it's the means of our salvation. Mark's gospel says that the bread and the cup before us are a picture of Jesus' body and blood. But in Roman Catholicism, the bread and the cup are actually Jesus' body and blood. It says that in the supper, we're not just remembering Jesus' sacrifice, we're actually re-sacrificing Jesus. We're completing what Jesus only started on the cross. It's saying that when Jesus died for us, he actually didn't fully forgive us. It says that the only way to be fully forgiven, fully restored, fully saved is to share in the supper. Because when we do that, we're completing the cross of Christ, as it were. I'm not in the habit of quoting Pope, but let me do one. Uh, Pope Pius XII, this is what he writes. The Lord's Supper is, quote, a true and proper act of sacrifice whereby Jesus offers himself to the Eternal Father as he did upon the cross. Now, let me pause here and say, I have a number 
of friends who are in Roman Catholic churches who don't believe that, who love the Lord Jesus and are thoroughly saved, and I would call a brother and sister any and every day of the week. But you can see a problem with this, can't you? If the supper completes the cross, then Jesus actually only went halfway to forgiving us, halfway to restoring us, halfway to saving us. And in the end, it's no longer about the cross where Jesus went for us. It's now about the supper where we come to him. The gospel is now not about where Christ has gone for us. It's about where we go to him. Can I say, I love the Lord's Supper, not because it is my salvation, but because it celebrates my salvation. Because it reminds me of the cross where Jesus went to die, to forgive and to restore me who hated him, who betrayed him and who killed him. And if I really understand, if I really know where Jesus went for me, can I say, I'll know where I must go for him. Where must we go? In verses 27 to 31, the disciples show us where we must go for Jesus. And ironically, they show us where we must go by where they fail to go. It's found, captured in Peter's final words there in verse 31. If I have to die with you, I will never deny you. It's a bit awkward because Jesus did die for Peter and Peter did deny Jesus three times. But Peter's resolve shows us exactly where we must go. It shows us exactly what we must do in response to what Jesus has done for us. We must go for Jesus where Jesus has gone for us. We must follow him to the cross. You see, at the cross, Jesus refused to deny us. So will we not refuse to deny him? At the cross, Jesus gave his life for us. So will we not give our lives for him? At the cross, Jesus loved us unto death. Will we not love him unto death as well? In 1553, King Edward V died. And in his place, Queen Mary ascended the throne. She put an end to the Reformation. She re-established Roman Catholicism right across England. And as one of her first acts, she found a Christian man, a Christian leader, whose name was Nicholas Ridley. And she put him on trial for heresy because he refused to accept that in this meal was our salvation. He knew that that if the supper was our salvation, that Jesus only went halfway to forgiving us. I want you to read what Ridley wrote all those years ago. Christ made one perfect sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. Neither can any man reiterate or repeat that sacrifice of his. We just can't repeat it. It was perfect. He went the full length. He did everything necessary to forgive us. Those words sealed his fate. And on the 16th of October, 1555... Nicholas Ridley walked to the stake where he was burned and killed. But just before he died, he was given a way out, a chance to recant his trust in the cross alone. And I want you to hear his final words, or what were close to his final words. 
so long as the breath is in my body, I will never deny my Lord Christ and his known truth. What a way to go! Ridley understood the lengths to which Jesus went for him. He knew that it was he himself who deserved to be hung on that cross for hating Jesus, betraying Jesus, and killing the Lord Jesus. But he knew that Jesus went to the cross to die, to forgive, to restore, and to save him. And because he knew that truth, in the marrow of his bones, he knew in that moment where he needed to go for Jesus. He needed to follow him to the cross of Christ. May we know the lengths to which Jesus went to make us enemies his friends. And may we say with the Apostle Peter, and Nicholas Ridley, and Christians throughout church history, and Christians around our world today, if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. Can I pray? God, we know that our hearts are not just cold to you, not just indifferent, not just uncaring. No, God, we know that in our sin, Romans 3 tells us that all of us have hated your son. We are responsible, God. It was our sin that nailed him there until it was accomplished. But as we reflect on where Jesus has gone for us, the lengths to which Jesus has gone for us, may we, God, who were once his enemies and now his friends, follow him to the cross and say, God, so long as the breath is in our body, we will never deny our Lord Christ. Do these things, God. Cast our eyes on your Son and all that he has done for us. In his strong name we pray. Amen.